Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Hello and welcome back to the Power Hour, the Heritage Foundation Center for Energy, Climate, and Environments podcast. I'm your host, Jack Spencer, and I'm joined today by my colleague and Power Hour producer, John Pop. Now, John, I heard a great nickname for you. I don't know if we've ever said this before. I didn't hear it, but uh, that you are this show's best propagandist. I love that one. I've heard a lot with my last name. That is awesome. All right. So I'm going to steal that one right away. Well, I'm going to start introducing you as the, the Power min- Hours the lead min- propagandist, John Pop. The Minister of Propagandary. Yes. <laughs> so, John, how are you today? I am great. Good. Ready to rock and roll. All right. Very good. I am awesome today. Um, the, I had lunch outside. It's a beautiful day. Beautiful out there. I had a great weekend. I think I mentioned... On our last podcast, that the upcoming weekend, which was then upcoming, now last, was the opening of hunting season. Oh, that's right. In West Virginia. And? So I, was, I was able to go up to West Virginia for the weekend and spend two entire days, day to night. I mean, I came down out of the tree for a couple hours in between, which I shouldn't admit because a real deer hunter was stepped in the tree all day long. Oh, yeah. yeah. I came out a couple hours. Um, it was glorious. We opened a tree stand. Yes, sir. Wow. See, yes, sir. you're a kind of high energy guy like me. I just, I tried it before. I couldn't do it. Like real hunters will sit in a blind for hours. Like, yeah. no, don't noise, phone, nothing. I'll be like, how long has it been? Have we been here five minutes? So it's like, it's well, like, I, I do take my phone up, but it's because you need something to look at. Right. Okay. Um, well, on silent mode, I guess. Yeah, most yeah. certainly. Yes. But I, I got up there a couple of hours before, an hour and a half before daylight. And then I came down for a couple of hours, three hours, I guess, and then went back up till dark. Well, not till dark, because I shot something. Oh, really? I killed myself a deer. Now, to me, I'm not looking for big racks. Right, right. It's just not my style. But I got a a buck, which is perfect for my freezer. Yep. So, and I'm heading up again this weekend. So wow! I'm Congratulations! Look at you. Well done. You know, you should come to my house because we have big deer in our backyard all the time. You wouldn't have to go as far. I mean, just no. look across the backyard. There's something I like about going five and a half hours to the land that I own. There you go. In West Virginia. But nice. anyway, enough Con- about that. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. I'll be waiting for my venison steaks, please. I, I'll, I'll bring I'll bring you in some venison uh, product because we make sausages. We make all kinds of stuff. Well, my buddy had some venison and... He does his own kind of marinade, and so he marinated some of it. I took it home and put it in my air fryer dryer thing and made venison jerky. It was awesome. Yep. Good I stuff. I make that. Good uh, stuff. Absolutely. Anyway, I guess we have a podcast to do here, and it's not a hunting podcast. It's but not. I, if Heritage ever wanted to pay me to do one, I'd do that <laughs> well, for sure. Or are, didn't pay me, just allowed me to do one. We, we always are hunting for new people to listen to the podcast so there you go <laughs> as a good propagandist would say <laughs> thank you now let me ask you something john what is your favorite holiday Oof. uh I, w- I would normally say christmas but my wife's birthday is on july 4th so i better say fourth of july <laughs> <laughs> those are both excellent holidays fine american holidays but as it turns out 
It's not my favorite holiday. Really? No. What's yours? Just passed. October 4th. You know what October 4th is? No. National Energy Appreciation Day. There you go. Boom. That's my favorite holiday. I'm not surprised. Now, what's second for yours? Like Coal Appreciation Day? Is that your second favorite well, if holiday? There's a, if there's a Coal Appreciation Day, <laughs> let me know because I got a new favorite holiday. Sign me up. <laughs> anyway. Now, what is National Energy Appreciation Day, you ask? Mm-hmm. Well, you're not going to believe this. You're not going to believe this, but we happen to have with us the perfect guest, the best guest in the world to tell us about that. But first, I'm not going to get, I'm not going to go there quite yet because we haven't done our housekeeping. That's right. Let's, uh, I want to tell people what our email address is, which is thepowerhour at heritage.org. So shoot me an email. Tell us what you like that we're doing. Tell us what you don't like that we're doing. If there are issues you want to hear about. If you have questions, specific questions you want me to ask future guests, I'll do it. That email address is thepowerhour at heritage.org. Now, John, can you tell folks where to find us? Yes, I will. But first, can they can send you an email to tell them what their favorite holiday is? Please, please do. <laughs> there you go. And, and let me know if you're aware of a national coal day. <laughs> Wouldn't Christmas for the bad kids be coal in your stocking day? Christmas for the good kids. I'll tell you what. You want to hear what left-wing propaganda is? You, you think left-wing propaganda is something new? It's not. This whole narrative that coal is what we shouldn't want All right. is most certainly a product of left-wing propaganda. Amen. So... You can find this here podcast. We are under the Heard It Heritage podcast feed. So just Google, put in your favorite search engine, Heard It Heritage, The Power Hour. We're available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, everywhere you can get your podcasts. And please subscribe to the podcast feed and share it with your friends. There you go. Reach out to us. Now, as a reminder, I want to get you involved with the program. So if you have any questions, as I mentioned, let us know that. Now, as I said... We could not have a better guest today for National Energy Appreciation Day. Not only does our guest really, really appreciate energy, but also has an amazing resume. She has served as the Chief of Staff at the United States Environmental Protection Agency. Now, to be fair, I'd prefer that no one ever have that job again. I mean, we spend a lot of time here railing against the meddlesome, busybody bureaucrats who want to control every aspect of our lives. And no agency holds more of those condescending, power-hungry dolts than the EPA. But if we're going to have an EPA, then I would rather have no one as its chief of staff (laughs) than our guest today. She's an environmental attorney. Now, again, we don't like attorneys around here. We don't have much good to say about them. But our guest is one of the few that wants to protect our freedom and property rights, not to take go. them away. That's good. She has a ton of Capitol Hill experience. Currently, she directs the Center for Energy and Conservation at the Independent Women's Forum. And lastly, but by no means leastly, holds the title of Visiting Fellow at the Heritage Foundation. She has done and does do a bunch of other stuff as well. I want to present to our Power Hour audience, Mandy Gunasakara. Did I say it right? No, I didn't, did I? I put the It was really close. Guna Sacra. Guna Sacra. And we did we were talking before that we recorded and I did say that he wouldn't get it right. So it's true. So if you were I, I a betting bet. man, you yeah, would have bet that's correctly. Right. That's right. So Mandy, welcome to the power hour. <laughs> yeah, it's great to be with y'all. Mandy Gu- Guna Sacra. Guna Sacra. Sacra. I my, the power hour audience has to be tired of me mispronouncing guest names. No matter how many times I say it beforehand. 
Right. I just get it wrong. Yeah. It's Unisakura. Fine. Yeah, that's oh, perfect. There you Unisakura. go. Nailed it. Well, there you go. Or Mandy. We can <laughs> just stick with that. That's yeah. how most people know me. I'm going to call you Unisakura. No, okay. Um, Mandy, how did you get here? I, I've talked a little bit, but like, what, where are you from? How do you end up being an energy lawyer, EPA, chief of staff, congressional hand, all that? Like, what got you from there to... To hear. Well, I started out as an intern. I think for a lot of people coming to D.C., um, I had an opportunity to intern for my home state and home district congressman back in 2004 after my freshman year in undergrad. And it was Congressman Chip Pickering. And I came up here. I was a communications major at the time. So I thought I wanted to be a reporter, a newscaster. So I spent that summer giving tours, engaging with constituents and getting to know anyone I could that was involved in any of the networks on Capitol Hill. By happenstance, the way DC is, I was standing in line for coffee one day and I was standing behind one of the managers for CNN and he brought me down and I met all of the other managers for the various news organizations and I really enjoyed it. But I noticed one thing, Jack, that the reporters were always waiting outside the room to learn what happened. And my big takeaway from that internship I talked to my father, who's always helped guide me in my employment decisions, that I wanted to be in the room helping to make the decision. I didn't want to report on what had already happened. And so he told me I should go to law school, get my law degree, and then come up and work on Capitol Hill. So throughout my undergraduate experience and law school career, I guess you could call it that, I did a variety of internships in the House, in the Senate, for committees, for the White House, and got to know as many people as I could. So when I came up here, after being a newly minted and barred attorney, um, I could get to work on the things that I cared about. And during that process, one of my most substantive internships was at the Energy and Commerce Committee. I was working for the general counsel at the time, who a gentleman named Lance Kochwar, and we were doing the summer of cap and trade. So I spent mm -hmm. a lot of my summer looking up the emissions profiles of various pro uh, various industries, various products, and really getting to know and exposed to the energy systems writ large. Did you come across the Heritage Foundation analysis of cap and trade back then? Do you remember? I did. Uh -huh. I remember the Heritage Act. Yeah, uh -huh. I think this was before. Did y'all do key vote? It was before Heritage. First of all, Heritage does never do key votes. Heritage action. Heritage Act. Well, right. <laughs> let's be clear here. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, obviously, I was referring to the appropriate <laughs> entity for that. Um, but uh, yes, I do remember learning about Heritage, reading some of their materials and getting to know some of the folks that worked there at the time. Because in true intern fashion, I lived in one of these houses down the street where I was in a house built for five people, sharing it with 10 to 15. And some of the folks that I lived with were doing internships at Heritage. OK, cool. I remember I remember that time. And. You know, we've had some good successes over the years, but that analysis, I think, was one of the most impactful that we did. And we've been building on that ever since. So I'm glad that, like, someone is here who got to use it. Yeah, well, and it's not much has changed. They're still trying to do the same thing, they being the left or those that want to use the environment as an excuse to limit freedom or take away independence. 
they're doing the same thing. They've just got gotten smarter about how they market it. They aren't as honest anymore. They used to be honest about the fact that they were actually going institute a tax of some sort. Now they won't call it a tax, and now they'll pretend like all of these new regulations don't come with cost or other liabilities. So they're really doing the same thing that they were trying to do back then. They've also transplanted it from trying to get it done through Congress, and they've been using the variety of agencies, EPA as front and center. I want to, uh, did you see, by the way, sometimes the truth emerges even though they don't try for it to, this poll from London or England, UK somewhere, might have been UK broadly, where something like 50% of the people there are for limiting plane travel to only four times in your lifetime in order oh to save gosh. CO2 for CO2 reasons. I mean. Can you imagine that? Four times, four trips. Four, your whole life. That's it. Yeah. That's absurd. It's absurd. It's like propagandist over there has been doing his work. I have been, yes. It, I mean, really, if there's been a better, uh, there's been a better recent example of the impact of propaganda. I don't know what it is. I mean, this whole climate change thing has been amazing to watch unfold over the years. Now, now, of course, Jack, that would not cover, I imagine, the private plane use by all those people on the left who are running around advocating that we limit well, it to four times. Well, they, they like, fly so we don't have to. Yeah, that's right. They do. They're, they're running on morality. Yeah. <laughs> and that's unlimited in the realm of leftism. Right. So I hear. <laughs> well, cool. Now, what do you do well, I'll get to that in a minute. First, let's, let's, I want to get off the, the table what we're here to talk about, which is yeah. National Energy Appreciation Week. What is it? What's your role in it? And, you know, let's talk about that for a minute. Yeah, so National Energy Appreciation Day, NEAD. It's a project of the Independent Women's Forum Center for Energy and Conservation. And we found really great partners with the Heritage Foundation, of course, which we have a panel later today um, at 4 p.m. where we'll be discussing this in full if folks can't actually attend during the live event. I'm sure it will be posted afterwards and they can access the conversation I'm going to be having with Diana Furchgott-Roth, who is the head of the CECE. Um, here at Heritage, and Senator Cynthia Lummis, who was the Senate sponsor for the resolution. So to establish a day in the country, you don't have to introduce a resolution in the House and the Senate. But we wanted to because this isn't just about establishing a day. It's about bringing people on board to recognize the vital role energy is to modern life. Everything that we do, everything that we use is tied to our energy systems, number one. And number two, to recognize the men and women that make it all work. Uh, they do some of the hardest, most complex jobs. And over recent years, largely because of the, the way the rhetoric around climate change has changed, they're vilified and they shouldn't be. So I want today to be a day where we appreciate when we flip on the switch, the lights turn on or how simple it is to drive up to a gas station and fill up your car. And then you have independence and mobility. And there's so many things that are enabled by that. I want us to think about that today. But I also want to think about the men and women who wake up every day and they do the hard work that makes our lives so simple and great. Yeah, I think that um, it's so easy to think about when you plug in your toaster or fill up your pump, like, that, that that is a uh, a just a thing that happens, right? And it's not. It starts with, um, first of all, it starts with someone saying, "I want to invest my hard-earned money as capital mm -hmm. in order to develop these things." Yeah. And then you have to do the thing. You have to get the thing out of the ground. You have to process the thing. 
you have to turn the process thing then into a usable fuel. You then have to build the thing in which the fuel works. You then have to operate the thing. And that's just to get the electron or the molecule ready to be transported. Then it has to be transported via truck or whatever or pipeline or wire to get to the where you get to plug it in. And that's all people who are the tradespeople, the engineers. I mean, it really is, when you think about it, it's this democratized system where people of all different education levels, all different socioeconomic um, backgrounds, all different geographical backgrounds, all working together, pulling in the same direction in order for you to plug in literally a, not you, us, yeah. we able to plug in a um, a thing or to drive a car to a pl- or, or or plug a car in whatever your whatever or, your thing or is or a microphone to or do microphone. an amazing podcast yeah it's unbelievable how much it takes to do that and absent government intervention it's done like really affordably like everyone absent government intervention can afford to plug something in yeah can put some gas in a vehicle and we in this country have perfected that process better than any other country. It's efficient, it's clean, it is accessible by virtue of affordability, and the only problems we've really run into is by virtue of the federal government and its various entities interfering with that process. Now, some standards make sense. Balanced environmental regulations, this is something we talked a lot a about. such no, I'm, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. <laughs> and we talked a lot about in the Trump administration. It, it is important. We all want to walk outside and breathe clean air and drink clean water. And to the extent there's legacy pollution, which there is some legacy pollution around this country back when we didn't really understand the impact of industrial activities to surrounding ecosystems. Now we do and we know how to fix it. So there's a balance there. But today, fast forward to today, a lot of that balance is what's missing, not only in the conversations around what energy is, what types of energy are important to keep our modern lives going, but also how to continually improve and reduce the relative environmental impact. That balance went out the window on day one of the Biden administration, and it's suddenly become a tool to push leftism that is premised on controlling our everyday life, limiting us to four flights a year or limiting us to only driving our cars when we can charge them or curtailing energy use. There's something called end-use discrimination, which is a growing problem that we know will continue to be abused as energy, if energy becomes less abundant and more scarce, which truly is the goal of the left, because if they can control energy and your access to it, they can have a much bigger influence on the decisions you make every single day. One of the things that I think that the Biden, and not just Biden, but Biden most recently, and they all build on one, one another, is convincing people that Washington is the right place for this environmental policy to take place. And as you said, maybe there's a role for Washington at a high level in certain instances, but there's a lack of appreciation for how markets can help bring about good environmental outcomes, how those closest to the issue, so the state and local governments are better positioned than Washington, how states are perfectly capable of working with their neighbor states to come up with with solutions that work best for them. And the Washington bureaucrats and Washington community ignores all that. They they just say, we can control that. We should control all that. And in so doing, 
because people want there to be a clean environment, they are sympathetic to that because they don't understand how all these other pieces work together. They take advantage of that in order to take control over all these aspects of our lives. And then that leads to policy that ends up frustrating people for years down for years. And they don't. And, and, and it's hard to make that connection sometimes. Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. And, you know, the the left's approach to environmentalism and climate change, it's all about control. Um, and it's all about using agencies like EPA that have important missions, like protecting public health and the environment. The mission of EPA in action is making industrial processes and technologies more efficient and perform better from an environmental perspective. It's not shutting them out, sh- shutting them down or putting them out of commission. And that's a key difference. And that's just one example you see in the Biden administration, the Department of Interior. They're taking that same prohibitionist approach to environmentalism where they want to shut things down so that they get to control it for themselves and not let the markets and the engineers and the innovators and the individual tinkerers out in the world that are creating that next best technology. You know, even when technology literally hits the environmental groups in D.C. in the face, they don't even appreciate it for what it is. The example I'm referring to is in Another another hat that I wear is um, I helped found a Bitcoin mining advocacy group called the Satoshi Action Fund. And Bitcoin miners, which are essentially computer processors, um, you can you can run them anywhere so long as you have access to an energy source. And right now, this is a private sector created tool that can be used to reduce the release of methane emissions. It's going on in Wyoming. It's going on in North Dakota. Um, This is the type of technology that if you really care about reducing emissions and not just extracting control, you would embrace wholeheartedly. But instead of embracing this technology for what it is, it's not the silver bullet, but it is an effective tool. You see the left denigrating Bitcoin and Bitcoin mining in particular, and then the cryptocurrency world. And that has a lot to do with it undermines the control that they've been trying to set up in the money space in the same way they're trying to set it up in the energy space. But Again, it goes to show you that some of the best solutions, I would actually argue this, the best solutions to any environmental issue always come outside of Washington and very rarely come from within. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And God, you brought up cryptocurrency. I love cryptocurrency <laughs> conversations. I'm not going to get too far we into could have that. A, I could come back. You know. you know, we did. It's not my job to talk cryptocurrency, unfortunately. But we did a... Uh, Every once in a while, we will dabble in what I like to call energy-adjacent issues. Mm. And I don't know if you recall, about a year ago, not quite a year ago, Biden came up with a policy to tax energy used for crypto mining. Yes. And we were able to use that as a on-ramp onto a discussion about crypto as a energy-adjacent discussion. Yeah. But that's a great example of, of them seeing their power eroding a little bit yeah. and doing what they can to bring it back in. Because as you point out, why the crypto debate is so good is, and it's, it's something that people don't realize, is that control over money supply is one of the greatest levers of control over our lives that government has. Yeah. And they want to hold on to that monopoly so bad and that the emergence of crypto is undermining it. And it will be interesting to watch how as the as crypto evolves, how government works to stop it, mm-hmm. and they're not going to be able to. They're, they're not going to be able to. 
right? And I, I know I won't take us down the path of central bank digital currencies. Well, but I was just the, going to. That's, that's their effort to do it. Yeah, so that's that's the response. So um, if you want to coalesce control by the Fed or other central banks um, or central bank type entities, the response to Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies is CBDCs, but this is stepping back. It's you control the money, you control the people, you control energy, you control what the people do every day. So right. it really goes back to, to, to that original theme. But bringing it back into the energy discussion, again, Bitcoin mining is something that has a really positive impact on the energy and the environmental story. Anyone on Capitol Hill that tries to criticize Bitcoin energy use or the emissions affiliated with it, that is just a red herring. They don't like it because it undermines that control that they really want. Um, but Bitcoin mining not only can go after what would otherwise be released methane emissions, but it also helps stabilize the grid with the higher integration of wind and solar that creates these duck curves where, um, or just that mismatch with supply and demand, Bitcoin mining can help level that out. So it's an effective tool in a lot of applications and especially when it comes to ensuring we maintain some degree of reliability with our energy systems. That's all true. I would say further, though, because accusations of too much energy use is something that the anti-energy crowd will often make. Right. And it not only demonstrates, as you just talked about, on a specific level, how you how, how different energy applications fit in with others. But it demonstrates a complete lack of understanding of economics and markets. Right. We should never if, – if, if, if someone needs more energy, they will buy more energy, and that will tell energy producers to produce more energy. Right. It's like whenever people didn't understand how lifting the ban on crude exports would could lower oil prices. But it, it does because it creates more incentive to produce more. Right. And it also has geopolitical benefits and a million other benefits. So I hate when people say, you shouldn't drive that Hummer. It uses too much gas. <laughs> you're an idiot. Like, you're literally an idiot. You have no idea what you're talking about. Me driving this Hummer. Not that I have a Hummer, though I should. I feel like you should. <laughs> <laughs> Just you look sit- good in one. I can uh, see yeah, it right well. now. Yeah. Going out to your <laughs> land in West Virginia. Right. But it, it's, it's, it's annoying. It's so, The whole thing is annoying. Anyway, I want to know from you. And we... we we can. I, w- I want to come back to National Energy Appreciation Day. I want to ask you what people can do. But I want to get into that. I want to end with that so that they don't forget what we talked about. Okay, great. It's all relevant. But I want to ask you um, what it was like to work at EPA. It was the hardest job I ever had. I mean, the actually, the I had two jobs at EPA. Technically three, but really two were the same. My first job was working as Principal Deputy Assistant Administrator in the Office of Air and Radiation. That, During which time you didn't fix our radiation regulations. I, well, well it, sorry, it wasn't a priority. <laughs> I'll just be honest with you. But next go round, this is why we're working on Project 2025. And no stone will be left unturned, including right. the radiation All issues. Right. Okay, you. But I'm going to lean you. on you for support on that. Get rid of them. No, don't okay. get rid of them. We think these antiquated radiation regulations because we don't we know far more about it today than we did in the 1950s when this whole thing was done. Isn't that true yeah. about we could have a whole conversation about the evolution of science and our relative understanding. You could say that for radiation. You could say that for climate change. Just think about our understanding of COVID in the past few years and how you need to constantly be updating regulations. So I'm all on board with updating the, the relative <laughs> radiation standards and apologies for the shortcoming the first go around. Right, I'm, sorry. No, I'm sorry for interrupting. <laughs> Tell us. Okay. Yeah. So first job, um, it was I, that job I really loved. It was it was more of a technical job from day one. It was 
briefing the president and getting out of the Paris Climate Accord. That was one of our first big items. And the reason that was so important is because it really shifted the narrative from American environmentalism worrying about and prioritizing global wants and needs to focusing on what does America need and how can environmental improvement work alongside economic progress and growth that that President Trump had talked so much about on the campaign trail. So step one was that. So I want to talk to you more about that experience. Should I? We, let's do it now. Okay, let's do that now. So I was involved in that too. Yeah. Um, not from a, you know, I, I was here, but working with people in the Trump administration to get that done. And we all thought it was going to get done. Yeah. And then at the, at the 11th hour, it, we weren't sure that it was going to get done. I know. There was this whole cabal mm-hmm. of... Of of globalists, uh, I, it was the Goldman Sachs crew, and, and led by Gary Cohn, who was it, the head of the NEC from the start. And w- weren't there people in the State Department and Defense Department who were skeptical of get, getting out of it? I, I'm curious if, to the extent you're comfortable talking. Yeah. I've never talked to anyone on the inside post mortem. What happened? What was your experience? How did we win that? How did you win that fight? It was a roller coaster. It was. It really started, and I started mid March. I think it was like March 16th or 17th. After Scott Pruitt was officially confirmed, I came in a week later, and we immediately started having briefings and meetings with various entities at the White House. And the the way that we won is, I, I wouldn't even say when, the decision had been made. The president had made the decision. But anyone who has ever had an idea and brought it to Washington, you do not understand the tailwinds you're going to be up against until you until you try to actually execute on the good idea that you had outside of Washington. And the president obviously ran into that early on. And the Paris Accord discussion, it was really complicated. But this this is what happened. And this is how President Trump uh, was briefed on a lot of issues, certainly the ones I was involved in. He will set you up so that you're immensely outnumbered to see if your argument will actually hold up. So one of the very first and what I think really tipped the scales in our favor briefings that me and Scott and the chief of staff at the time, Ryan Jackson, we walked into the Oval Office and we were literally outnumbered with, we were the we should get out group and we were outnumbered by a group of 25 to 30 people that were the we should stay in. Um, and it was, I called them the Goldman Sachs coalition, but it was a number of folks that had come, some actually came from Goldman Sachs. Some are people worked at nonprofits here that are more more capital focused. And so they're a part of international finance and banking and they'd been to the cops and they bought into the whole, well, we could we could make this a business. We could We could turn this into a business which is, yeah, it's a business, but it's a bad business aimed at undermining what makes America so great as a side note. But we have a business on the back of America's lowest income folks. Exactly. Yeah. I keep interrupting. And and undermines undermines, um, what would otherwise be exponential growth. But we walked in and Administrator Pruitt was a really, really good advocate. He was the former attorney general of Oklahoma. And when you give him the right talking points and you shape the narrative, he can go in and sell it. I was right there with him providing the longer term context because I had been the Republican representing the Senate for the past few years leading up to the Paris Climate Accord. So anytime someone said something kind of abstract and esoteric about, oh, we can work with the environmental groups. Oh, um, you know, I talked to so-and-so and they said that they wouldn't sue us. I could I could 
shoot that down very quickly and from a position of not just credibility but experience because of the work that I had had. So I think we made a really, really good team. But also we walked in. We were totally outnumbered. And, and this is what President Trump does. He will he'll throw you into the lion's den, so to speak, and see who out who comes out on top. And what's most interesting about a lot of the briefings, but this one in particular I'm thinking about, President Trump was the quietest person in the room, and he just listened, and he watched how people interacted, and at the end of the, end of the day, the strongest argument won. And throughout all of it, he kept coming back to us and asking, but what does this do to the American worker? And when you think about the Paris Climate Accord, if you wanted to sum it up, it was literally selling out the American economy and the workers who relied on it to interests like China and India, and it was an absolute bad deal. And we just kept reiterating that and explaining that and all the information we'd had. And I will say Heritage had had done a ton of work um, and the National Association of Manufacturers had done a ton of work in bringing forward the type of data that was necessary to show the real harm that something, the Paris Climate Accord, it's not really going to impact your day to day. That's what the that's what the people who are proponents of it would say. But we had the tools to say, no, actually, Mr. President, it will impact the cement industry in this way. It will actually impact Pennsylvania, the local economy in this way. It's going to destroy this number of jobs. And you think about those jobs. Those are job jobs that are job multipliers. Other jobs depend on the success of those industries to build strong, resilient communities throughout the country. And so we were able to explain all that. And there were a number of briefings. I mean, I, I remember April, May, and the announcement was June, I think, if memory serves me correctly, early June, where he did the Rose Garden announcement. But it was a roller coaster of we're getting in, we're staying out, we're going to renegotiate back and forth. And I have my Paris memos. I actually have one of them framed that the president signed, the first one I sent to him, laying out why we needed to get out. And I have that framed, but there were a series of those memos being sent to him in response to questions he had, but also that group of people who just wanted to go along to get along when it came to Paris and didn't want to ruffle any feathers. And anyway, it was a really big deal when the president made that announcement in the Rose Garden because it was the end of that. And not just for climate. It was, it was That was across the administration mm-hmm. and in so many of the other areas, border security, where he didn't care about ruffling feathers. He cared about what's doing the right thing. And he depended on staff like Administrator Pruitt and myself and others to help him get it across the finish line. Now, you mentioned Administrator Pruitt. You also work for Andrew Wheeler. Yeah. Yeah. I was his chief of staff. Right. All right. I want to come back to Andrew. Okay. But for Pruitt, what happened with the red team, blue team exercise? Mm. Because I'm I'm sure that's a good story (laughs) from the inside. Yeah. Well, it... I should say the red team, blue team exercise was a thing that Administrator Pruitt was trying to set up to create a debate mm-hmm. on climate change. Yeah. Where red team would be, I, I don't I forget what was what, but there would be a pro and an anti, and it was going to create really uh, pit, the not pit, allow the science to speak front for itself with people who are true experts on both sides, and that somehow that became controversial. Yeah, it became really controversial. And the 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 skinny, the short, short response is that was another one of those issues where it was up and down. People were on board. People weren't on board. And what ultimately failed is we hadn't done enough uh, preview work to tee it up in a way to where the politicos that made some of the decisions and had an influence on whether or not we were going to do it felt comfortable with moving forward with it. Mm-hmm. They were where it is. It is having this type of debate is like tapping into a holy grail of the left. And there were concerns that that would come back to bite us. We didn't really Mm. have formal 
uh, thoughtful conversations about that project until a little bit later. And um, it just it was a complicated time. So ultimately, it got quashed as a second term effort. And then we obviously never had that second term. Do you think that this might be put, I'm not trying to put you on, on the spot. I can handle it. It might sound like I'm trying to make heritage sound good, but whatever. Heritage is good. Heritage is good. But I don't, I shouldn't be like saying how awesome heritage is, though. Heritage is awesome. You are part of this global warming study stuff that we're doing now, where we're bringing in these experts from around the world who are writing strong academic papers on discrete elements of global warming. If that team had been together and had published those things, is that the kind of group that if it was already there that could have been influential in a red team, blue team scenario? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that, again, with especially the environmental issues, whether you're talking about the National Ambient Air Quality Standards, whether you're talking about greenhouse gas regulations or or WOTUS or some of these bigger name regulatory actions, they are premised on an understanding of science or an understanding of epidemiological studies at a moment in time. Um, and at that moment in time, typically it's the greatest understanding some of them have been more politicized than others as a caveat, but it's a snapshot in time. And in, in all of those instances, it behooves us, if we truly care about keeping environmental progress alive and well and used as a way to improve efficiencies instead of shut down the old bad industries of the past, that's not the way that we should go about doing any of this, then it behooves us to take stock, reassess. What do we know now that we didn't understand then? What technologies exist today that didn't exist then that can actually um, take this, this new environmental standard or this new environmental goal or old environmental goal to a new standard? Um, and actually, some of those reassessment requirements are built into the law, the Clean Air Act under the Hazardous Air Program. There's eight-year review requirements built into some of those standards. But it makes sense to do that even for areas that may be considered the holy grail of environmentalism. We have to be willing to take that on if we truly are honest about uh, accepting and incorporating our latest and greatest understandings of science or technology or technological capabilities. And so, yeah, that type of work is going to be extremely important for the next administration. Because what you also have to consider is if we're going in and we're trying to reshape some of these regulations, the Administrative Procedure Act, it all comes down to what is in the record. Um, and you want to start building the case for your record well before well before you ever actually have that opportunity. Otherwise, you're going to spend two years trying to do assessments, research, and analysis before you can even get to, well, this is what the new standard should ultimately be. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I know folks are doing that across the board. I know that those ideas and concepts are a large part of Project 2025, another great project of the Heritage Foundation. But making sure we're ready on day one to hit the ground running and in places like EPA, where I most intimately have familiar that the mission is fulfilled uh, without having to sacrifice other great important things of the American economy, American jobs, and the day-to-day -day lives of the American people. Now, I had asked you what it was like to work at EPA, and then I interrupted you <laughs> We got at off Paris. on a tangent. Yeah, okay. So well, can, t tell us some more EPA stories. Yeah. And I'm super interested to hear what it was like working for Andrew Wheeler, because whenever he became the—Andrew was someone that those of us on the right— have 
you know, he has held high level positions on, on the Hill and, and he was always someone that we knew would do the right thing. Yeah. And having him as the administrator, I mean, Scott Pruitt was good too. Yeah. Cause he had done, um, you know, he had taken on the global warming folks in Oklahoma. I forget what exactly the, the issue was, but he had, I remember he had taken them on there, but Andrew was like, he was one of us, you know, like yeah. one of us in a good way. Right. And it was like, we know he knows like the details of this stuff. He's not, not that there's anything wrong with governors, not that governors don't know what they're doing. <laughs> But Andrew was different, and I'm really curious what it was like to work for him. He he had been the worker bee. He knew he knew the information. It's it's hard to work for someone who, when you walk in the room, you know that they're smarter on the issue that you're there to brief them on. Tell and me that, about. It. I've been there for <laughs> my whole career. That was just about every day with Andrew Wheeler um, because. He had done a lot of things. A lot of people may not realize this. He started his career as a career staffer at EPA in their one of their sub-chemical offices. They've changed names so many times. I forget exactly um, what it was called back then. But he started out um, in that space. And what was great, there was, there was a lot of turmoil around Administrator Pruitt. A lot of it was unfair and just the reality of if you're a Republican that attains a position of um, of significance, you're going to be scrutinized and held to a double standard by the lamestream media, and they're going to go after you and try to destroy your life, which is what they tried to do with Scott Pruitt. Um, and after he left, there was this turmoil. So bringing someone in like Andrew, who not only had started his career at EPA, but he had worked on environmental issues all just about all of his career. He had served as the staff director of the Senate Environment and Public Works Committee. And so he really was that leveling force that the agency needed to bring together the political team as well as the careers. One of the things, this was a big takeaway for me, you're not going to be successful working at an agency if you're working against all of the careers. You need them. And and the analogy that was explained to me is that agencies are like a ship, and every four years a new band of pirates comes in and takes over and tries to turn that ship one way or the other, but there's still the people who actually make the ship go forward and without them you're not going to you're not going to achieve any degree of momentum to the left or the right. And so my experience especially when I was in at, in the air office is I I stopped reading the media about the relationship I was supposed to have with the people who were in the room with me, helping me deliver on direction we either got from the president or from the administrator. Um, and I have some really great, I, I have immense respect for a lot of the people in the room. Um, and I have really good relationships with the people who were in the room that truly are public servants in the traditional sense. Now, are there some bad apples? Absolutely. And I could give you a list of those bad apples. And those are some of the people who have no business being in in a room if and when conservatives get to take over again. And that's the wisdom I now have that I didn't back then. Um, but you've got to be at the agency. You've got to interact with people. You've got to go through the experience like we did early on where you put out a regulation that has some bombs in it. Bombs were purposeful weaknesses to a regulatory proposal, either legal or technical weaknesses that were there so that the environmental allies of the person who planted the bomb in the agency can then sue that, sue the EPA on that very issue and stop it in its tracks. And we had to go through that as well. 
So um, it was certainly a roller coaster working at EPA. I, I enjoyed my time at the air office. My chief of staff role, it was the most challenging job I've ever had. And really, the reason is because I started on the day the federal government shut down because of COVID. And as I explained, COVID, it took away all of the fun, exciting parts of being in a high-stress job like that. You know, you get to see everybody. You're working together. You're going in. You're running over to the situation room. You're coming back, and we're, we're doing all the events with the administrator and the travel. I get excited about that. That's fun. And it made all the worst parts, the HR components, it just made them 100 times more difficult. And and we were shooting blind. Nobody knew what COVID was, understood the threat, or understood how very early on it had all been politicized to the detriment of us being able to do our job effectively. Um, and then obviously going into the election year and the way that it all ended, it, it really put a sour taste in my mouth. Mm-hmm. My, my last day of leaving, the day we were actually kicked out early, they weren't going to let the administrator in on, you know, you have until January 20th at noon to get all your stuff out. They were going to let the administrator in because, remember, post-January 6th, they literally put mm. walls up around the town. <laughs> we couldn't even take the metro to work. And so my last day, I walked out of EPA with, you know, the, like, you're fired box with my plant <laughs> and, like, some papers or whatever. And it was in the dead of night. We had stayed there all day trying to wrap everything up and help people move their stuff out. And I walked out the front door and I was literally met by this giant steel wall. And so I had to walk around the agency. So, you know, something that should be one minute out the door was a 15 minute maze around around. And then I had to walk up the middle of the street to the metro station, metro center, um, because everything else was shut down. And it was it was cold and it started raining. And I was just like the anyone who is a um, who who may be familiar with Gone with the Wind. It was that Scarlett O'Hara <laughs> moment where she's like, never again, never again. And uh, but that's the way it ended. And it was it was really hard. Um, now, working for Andrew was awesome because he, he's he's smart and thoughtful and you learn so much. Um, I learned so much. And he really was what the agency needed at the time to achieve what we were able to ultimately get across the finish line. He's that quiet assassin in the corner. Um, mm. He's not he, he's unassuming, but he's got a plan. And so keeps you on your toes. That was really great. But um, it all ended with a bit of a sour taste and it largely had to do with COVID. <laughs> I'm not a gone with the wind guy, but I am a mad madman guy. <laughs> and I would recommend next time you find yourself in that situation, sunglasses and a cigarette, which is what Peggy did, um, turns you not into I've been fired, but I quit. I quit. I quit. So, That's my uh, next go around. I'm out. <laughs> now, we're coming up to the very end. I want to ask real quick. Okay. You had an experience running for public office yes. this year. Can you yeah. give us the quick version of that? Because I know... That was a whole thing, too. It was. So I will run for office in the future. Again, not Again. just in the past. Yeah, yeah. But my, my first uh, foray into it didn't go quite as I'd planned. I was running for public service commissioner for the Northern District in Mississippi. This is the top 33 counties of Mississippi, basically the top third of the state. And you're in charge of oversight of electricity, water, wastewater, and broadband. And it's an extremely important position, um, and I was running for a variety of reasons, but 
I want Mississippi to be the greatest it can be. And as I said on the campaign trail, if we're going to build a great economy, we've got to fix the fundamentals. And in my opinion, the fundamentals were what fell under the jurisdiction of the PSC. I had a lot of momentum. Everything was going really well. And then someone questioned the citizenship, my citizenship in my home state. Mind you, um, I'm from there. I grew up there, went to elementary school, middle school, Did high they listen school. to you talk? Uh, yeah. <laughs> though, although if people in Mississippi don't think I sound Mississippi, you know, wow. I, you've got to, you've got to, if my mom were here, you would understand why. <laughs> she has that very traditional Southern yeah. accent. Um, you have a skosh. I, yeah, I have a little bit. I have a little bit. And uh, and I'm proud of it, you know. Uh, but 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 despite the fact of I basically have been in Mississippi, the only times in my life I lived outside of the state was my father was active duty Air Force. So at the at, in service of the country, at, at the direction of the federal government. And then when I was an adult working for the federal government in Washington, D.C., in service to the House, the Senate and the, the president was the time period that ultimately mattered. But. Anyway, um, technicalities got me kicked out. I, I kicked off the ballot. I took it all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, I got Justice Alito uh, was willing to grant a stay, an emergency stay, to get me back on the ballot. But I couldn't get enough. I needed at least four justices, and, mm-hmm. and I couldn't quite get there. And so I, I got kicked off, and, and that was that. Well, until next time. Until next time. Now, we're coming to an end. Before we close, though, do you have like social media or like where, where can we send people to learn more, to follow sort of what you're into, what you're doing? Yeah. So for Independent Women's Forum, the Center for Energy and Conservation, I'd suggest going to IWF.org and you can find subdomain Center for Energy and Conservation. We have a newsletter that I put out once a month. It's called Clearing the Air, and it's a recap of what we've done, what we're working on, and, and what we think uh, folks in this space would be interested in, in looking forward. Also, any of the social media, you can follow me at MississippiMG on Twitter or Mandy Gunasekara on Truth. Very good. John, any final words? Yes, I do have a final word. Uh, Mandy, first of all, I really like you because, like Alexander Hamilton, you like to be in the room where it happens, <laughs> including this afternoon. Uh, my point being, if you can't listen live or be here live for this, that event will appear right in this here podcast feed, Jack, in the Heard It Heritage podcast feed. Another good reason to go there and follow Heard It Heritage, the Power Hour, and subscribe. There you go, folks. There you go. Remember to email us at thepowerhour@heritage.org. Remember to check out the event that if you're not able to attend live, you can still check out. Thank you, John. Thank you, Ma- Mandy. God, I, can keep, I even got Mandy wrong. Name. I was so focused on the last name, I messed up the first. Let me start. Do that again. Thank you, John. Thank you, Mandy. Nailed at that time. Thank you all for being here today. And that's it. See y'all next time.